way, if you will, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Pastor Pratt and I have the privilege to serve with the uh, city of Savage as police chaplains. And when we started, we were issued an ID card. I know you can't see this, but I'll prove it to you. <laughs> this ID card has our picture on it. It's pretty much as bad as a driver's license picture. It has our name on it, and it also says that we are official, credentialed, Savage police chaplain. Honestly, didn't take a whole lot to get there, but I guess you did have to have a seminary degree and go through a couple classes. But we have these cards. Now, it's interesting, on the back of this card, it says, This identification card is the property of the city of Savage Police Department and must be surrendered upon demand. Why does it say that? Because we could be disqualified for service. And if we were disqualified, we would lose our right to wear this card, which says that we are qualified to serve. So if we got to that place, they asked for it to be returned, we would need to return it. The back of the card also says this, the use of this card by any person other than the person identified hereon is a violation of section 609.475 of the Minnesota State Criminal Code. Violations will be prosecuted. I'm not sure how you prosecute a violation, but <laughs> I'll let that aside. I think they mean violators, but at any rate, if you grab this card and pretend to be me, and I'd pity you if the picture matched, but if you did, you'd be in tough shape. Someone who is not a police chaplain could use this card with evil intent in some respect to gain access somewhere. So this ID card can only be used by the person who is qualified to serve in the capacity identified on the face of the card. And we see these all over, don't we? See them, you see especially at the airport, workers there and workers in other places, particularly where security issues are significant. They declare one's credentials, one's qualification and right to hold a specified position. But one's credentials are not always specified on a flimsy card. The other flip side of this is you wear these when nobody really knows who you are. <laughs> That's the truth of the matter. But there are others in more important roles whose name is enough, aren't there? I, I just saw an advertisement here recently. There's a leadership conference coming in Minneapolis, and one of the speakers is Rudolph Giuliani. Name recognition. Pretty much all know who that is, and if you're in leadership circles, you really know who that is. They don't have to spell out his credentials, and he doesn't have to come wearing a tag. Everyone knows who he is. He's qualified to lead such a conference. But what would happen if Rudolph Giuliani was convicted of bribery or murder tomorrow morning? Would he be leading that conference here in a few weeks? Not at all. His credentials would be taken from him. His face on the front page of major newspapers across the land would strip him of his credentials, his name, and his right to lead. The more important the person, the higher the office, the more vital the role, the more essential is that person's credentials. 
Not just anyone can lecture on leadership or nuclear fission or some other difficult topic. Not just anyone can demonstrate a heart transplant. There are certain credentials that one has to have. And not just anyone can save sinners from hell. Not just anyone can rescue a fallen world. No laminated card will qualify you for that role. There must be some very stringent credentials. Now I'd like us to think here, particularly those of us who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We've come into a living relationship with Him. I'd like you to think for a moment about credentials and Jesus and put that together. Those of us who have a genuine faith relationship with Jesus Christ have placed our soul and our eternal salvation in His hands. We have placed our destiny in the hands of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who we have never seen, a man who has not been around for 2,000 years. Trusting Jesus with our eternal salvation, we had better make sure that he has the credentials. I would not want to lay on a table and get a heart transplant from a lumberyard worker who had just watched a Channel 2 special on heart transplants the night before and said, I want to try my hand at it. How foolish it would be to put your heart and your soul and your eternal destiny in the hands of a wannabe Savior. What does it take to be the Savior of the world? Do you have to write a book that people buy? Is that all it takes? Do you have to have a television show, a growing church? What does it take to save souls? And who will qualify? How do you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world? What are his credentials? Now let me hasten to say here, add this at the start, there are other things that are necessary to understanding who he is. But as we come to the third chapter of Luke, we see here Christ's credentials laid out for us. And it is important for us to stand on these credentials and to know that this is who the man whom we trust for our salvation. I'd like you to look in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. We've come to that place in our study of this book. And if you'll just page with me as I discuss here, verses 21 and 22, we have the baptism of Jesus. Beginning at verse 23, we have the lineage of Jesus. You can follow that all the way down through verse 38 and feel free to read all the names if you think you can. Some tough names in there, but you see this long genealogical list then at chapter 4 and verse 1, we enter into Jesus' temptation in the desert. What we have here are three segments of credentials for Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. They're carefully marked out for us before Luke recounts many of the details of Christ's public ministry on earth. Now those details also will evidence his credentials. But Luke here gives us three distinct evidences of 
Christ's qualification as Messiah. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' genealogical lineage, and Jesus' temptation by Satan. As you come to chapter 4 and verse 14, you'll notice that there the narrative of Christ's public ministry begins. So Luke has already recorded for us the unique birth of John and Jesus and the angelic announcements concerning their pivotal roles in redemption's plan. In some respects, what we have seen is qualification enough. But God continues to heap up Christ's credentials for us in his baptism, lineage, and temptation. And in these, we see confirmation of his unique qualification as Savior and Lord. We might refer to these three sections as Jesus' messianic credentials. Now let's go back to chapter 1 of Luke and verse 76. Chapter 1 and verse 76. Let's just walk through this quickly once again. We have Zechariah's prophecy concerning John. We have two people still that are primary at this point in the text of Luke, and that is John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Remember John's father, Zechariah, in chapter 1, in verse 76, where he prophesies, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness, darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Chapter 2 and verse 10, we meet that shining light, Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 10, we read here of the angelic announcement. The angel says to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now years pass and John and Jesus mature into the leaders God has ordained them to be. It's a story of great patience. But then God moves and John starts his ministry of offering a baptism of repentance to Israel. Chapter 3 and verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's ministry begins, what is he doing? He is saying, here is the Christ. Here is the one who will save the world. And he prepares the way for him. So while Jesus, or rather John, is baptizing, repentant Israelites are coming to the Jordan area. They are anticipating Messiah's ministry. And Jesus is continuing to live in Nazareth during this period of time. As Jesus waited patiently, essentially every opportunity his culture had to offer him passed him by. Remember, Jesus went to the temple at age 12, and he said, this is my father's house, and this is where I'm supposed to minister. That was the age when a young man entered onto the rabbinic track. Jesus was there at the temple, looking around to discern a rabbi that would sort of fit him, was at least the way the others chose it. And he would choose a rabbi and sit under that rabbi for the next several years. Well, we know Jesus went back submissive to his parents and did not get on the rabbinic track. Now, that was the track that if you could pile in all the celebrity concepts of our culture, athletics and music and entertainment, and you put all that celebrity together, it all rested in Israel on the head of the rabbi. But Jesus turned around and he left the temple in his rearview mirror And he went back with his parents, and he stayed there for 20 years. 
And during those 20 years, boys were generally married in their late teens. Jesus was now in his 30s and not married. And at age 30, and I believe in the chronology that I would follow, that Jesus has seen his 30th birthday pass. And it was at age 30 that you became a rabbi in Israel. Jesus has watched that pass. Every opportunity that his culture offered him seemed to pass him by. He just waited and waited on God. Now he hears of John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan. And I tell you, Jesus goes down to the Jordan stripped of all earthly acclaim. He does not go down as a rabbi. He does not go down even as a married man. And there were statements in that time that if you were a man and you were unmarried, there was something terribly wrong with you. You were under the curse of God and on and on it went. It was all, of course, very wrong. But Jesus went with nothing. He was a humble carpenter. And at this point, I'd like us to turn back to Matthew just to get a little more flavor of the history of this event. We'll focus for our attention on uh, the account in Luke. But I'd like to just bring out a couple of ideas here from Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, which Luke does not record. So we have Jesus at Nazareth hearing of John's baptism, and verse 13 of Matthew 3 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Jesus had come to be baptized by the one who said he was not worthy to unlatch the thong of Jesus' sandal. John was the baptizer. People came to him to identify with his call to repentance as the preacher. Such a response now was then not fitting for Jesus, the one that John was seeking to present to Israel. John assumes, you notice here, that Jesus does not need to be baptized. Verse 14, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He assumes Jesus does not need baptizing. So he's come to this baptism of repentance, and John says, no, you need to baptize me. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I don't want to stop long on that point of what it means to fulfill all righteousness here. But Jesus subtly acknowledges that he does not need to repent of sin. He does not need this baptism. But in the fulfillment of righteousness, in Jesus' case, this is fitting and good. And I believe to some degree that this is a pivotal point in Christ's life and probably more a matter of the ending of his private ministry than as the start of his public. It is both. But this is the fulfillment of his private life. He has come to a place of humility before God where he rests only on the timing and the direction of the Lord and comes now to submit with the repentant sinners of Israel to baptism. Not as a repentant Israelite, but with the repentant Israelites. Let it be. This is an act of utter humility on the part of the Son of God as he submits to this baptism. He knew it was right, and that will be confirmed. Back to Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. 
where we pick up there, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. The point is not that the people were, were all baptized at once, but they're coming out to the Jordan. They're being baptized, as we've discussed earlier here in chapter 3. Jesus goes out and is baptized there as well. Where this was is somewhat debatable, but it's apparently uh, on uh, the northern edge of John's ministry along the Jordan River Valley, and Jesus from Nazareth working his way east. My maps are on my desk, and the overhead's not here. Sorry about that, but if you can picture that in your mind. He works his way over east to the Jordan River and John meets him there where all of this takes place. Now let's move from there, verse 21. And, he, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. Jesus was immersed by John in the Jordan. And as he comes out, out, of, uh, comes out of the water, he lifts his heart to God in prayer. We're helped here again by the other uh, Gospels to say that Jesus is, is coming out of the water, heading up toward the bank. In verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So as he's coming out of the water, as Mark puts it, the heavens are split or rent open. The idea is that there is now a communication between the divine realm and the earthly realm. These two worlds are about to intersect. And the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. But the Holy Spirit came down with a physical presence similar to that of a dove. There was apparently a graceful floating descent of the Spirit indicating a gentleness and an innocence. And God speaks. These words are heavily charged with meaning. These words are found in the Old Testament pointing ahead to the Messiah. You are my son is an allusion to Psalm 2. A regal psalm, a messianic psalm of the kingship of the Son of God. So as, as these words would be heard in Jesus' mind, as he knows the Old Testament scriptures, and knowing his setting and his time, he probably has them all memorized, and of course understanding his, his memory. But many people who were fallen sinners had the Old Testament memorized in that day. Jesus knows the word of God through and through, obviously. And when he hears this, you are my son, it calls up Psalm 2. This is Messiah and the confirmation from God that that is who he is. You are my son, with whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These call up images from Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 and the whole section there of 40 and 40, 41 and 42 of Isaiah. All of this saying, you are the Messiah. The heavens are rent open, God speaks and confirms that Jesus is the promised one sent by God to redeem the world. So Jesus humbles himself and submits to his parents and wishes when he is 12 to stay at the temple but returns home. He humbles himself submitting to John's baptism and then at just the right time God calls him to ministry. There's certainly a lesson there for us, I think. Jesus does what is right. 
and he waits on God for the timing. This is the timing. I, I'm on the page with those who say that Jesus didn't say, I know that I'm now to present myself as the, as the Messiah, necessarily. He simply is doing what God wants him to do in this moment. Now obviously, seeing the activity of John and the baptism of John, there is some indicator that the time is right. But he simply is doing what God wants him to do. Now I'd like us to stop here for a few moments. Let's think about this event, this baptism. What does it say to us? First of all, I think it is identification with John's baptism, obviously. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus identifies himself with repentant people. That's an important point. He says, in effect, I look through all of Israel and I see the great rabbis of Jerusalem in their fancy robes and I look at the Romans with their great political power and I look throughout this whole land. My people are those that are down there on the desert river of Jordan and humbly being baptized by a man who's way out of style in his dress and his food habits, who's preaching a message of repentance. Those are my people. And Jesus travels east and downward to the Jordan River. Jesus' people are broken people. They're people who embrace the way of repentance. Secondly, we find here, of course, confirmation of God's Word. This is a dramatic speech. God confirms Jesus' unique relationship to Him and proclaims Jesus' credentials to serve as Messiah. Jesus was more than a good man. He was God's Son, and God's own voice declared that. We find here thirdly an equipping by the Holy Spirit. We tend to identify Messiah with forgiveness of sin, and well, we should. But as modern Westerners living in a democratic society, we also need to see Messiah in kingly terms. Jesus has been sent to be the King of Israel. And as we understand this relationship between God and His kings of Israel, there was often a unique anointing by the Spirit of God. Let me just remind you of a very evident illustration of that. 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. As we think back on the kings of Israel, and we think of the relationship of those kings to the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 10. We find here Samuel taking a flask of oil and pouring it on Saul's head, kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Verse 9 of this same chapter, 1 Samuel 10, 9. As Saul turned to leave, Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. Uh, chapter 16 and verse 13. So there's an anointing here to recognize Saul as the king. There is a change of heart. Not much, there's nothing more said about it there. But in chapter 16 and verse 13, after Saul has disqualified himself as the king, he's lost his credentials as the, as the theocratic representative. What happens to him? Verse 13 in 1 Samuel 16, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. There is this unique relationship between the Holy Spirit and the King of Israel. The Spirit comes upon David as the Spirit has left Saul. And I think in, in similar 
in a similar way, the Spirit now comes upon Jesus, the King of Israel, to anoint Him for this unique work, this empowerment for service. Jesus is the King of Israel. Now we find one other thing here in Luke 3 in this baptism that I think is worthy of our consideration, and that's the collaboration of the Trinity. Do you see that there? It's subtle, but I think it's very evident. At Christ's baptism, we see the Holy Trinity operating. God the Father is where? He speaks. His voice is sounded from heaven. This is my Son. This is Messiah. This is the one I have chosen. God the Father speaks. God the Son submits to this baptism. And where is the Holy Spirit? Descending upon Him in bodily form like a dove and indwelling Christ in some sense according to Mark's words. What a powerful scene this is. We witness here triune collaboration in the salvation enterprise. And I'll tell you, this, this should give us hope as Christians. This is a great scene. This is victory written all over it. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son submits to the task of the Father. Messiah has come to earth and He has come of age. And now at the head of the messianic path, it is clear that this will be a joint effort against which the gates of hell will never be able to stand. The Father's love, the Son's submission, and the Holy Spirit's illuminating grace will flow together to form a powerful, redemptive force. Nothing will be able to stop this force. And Jesus' baptism brings this all about, showing us His credentials as Messiah. Let me move to the second quickly here, and that is Jesus' lineage. At this time, messianic expectations were at a fever pitch, yet, as Edersheim puts it, the root of Jesse, whence this kingdom was to spring, was buried deep under the ground. It's well said. There's the picture of the root of Jesse, from which the kingdom will spring up. It's deeply buried. It is nowhere to be seen, as a matter of fact. In, in fact, his, history has buried it for some time. We think of the uh, world powers of Assyria and Egypt and Syria and Greece and Rome. All of these world powers dominating Israel. Where is the line of the kings in Israel right now? Who has any idea? Joseph himself is part of that line and he's a humble carpenter up in Nazareth. Nobody has any idea that he's in the kingly line, at least externally. The Davidic kingdom was no longer viable, it would appear. Joseph himself and all others that were his, the children of David are subject to the Roman power. But remember this, God keeps his word, doesn't he? He always does. So we look at this genealogy as really a promise fulfilled from the, word, from the mouth of God. And I'd like us to start at it backwards, if we can do that. I'd like to just trace it that way. And I'm asking you to plow with me for a few minutes here. How do you speak publicly on a genealogy? It's pretty much impossible. But I'll tell you, there's a lot here that's buried and that's very good. So if you'll follow me, you'll get something from this. Those of you that have been with us for several years and been through our studies in Genesis and all the time we've spent in genealogies there, you can probably fill in the blanks already. But Let's all remind ourselves of it and think through this again. We start at the bottom of the list that Jesus is the Son of God. Now there is no evidence for such an ending in any of the Jewish sources of that day. 
to say that someone was the Son of God. Some might be taken back to Adam, but never was this phrase found anywhere else. Now, it may be someday that doesn't mean anything necessarily, but it's a unique way of putting it, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it would seem to me that Luke might mean a little bit more there than meets the eye. We could all say we're a son of God as far as lineage goes, but he, he uh, ends the genealogy there. Interesting point. Now, who's up from there? Going up from the Son of God, we're at verse 38. You work your way up the line, and next is Adam. Matthew's genealogy stops at Abraham, but Luke takes it all the way back to God. He takes the genealogy back through Adam, of course, which was the, has the effect of identifying Jesus not only with the Jews, but also with all of humanity. We all come from Adam. And where does the next section start? We won't get there today, but in Jesus' temptation, it starts, uh, or it, it, it starts with this reference to Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam, and now we come into the temptation. It's hard for me to believe there's not some meaning there. By putting this genealogy right here, and think of it, chapter 3, not starting the book with it, but putting it here at chapter 3 and ending with Adam, there seems to be a subtle reference to the theme of the second Adam. Now you'll find many commentators who go nuts about that, that Luke couldn't possibly think of Jesus as a second Adam. I don't... I'm not compelled by any of their thinking that that's impossible. To some degree, I think that thinking is very much alive in the New Testament church. And Luke is part of the New Testament church, and some time has passed, and the theology is developing, and I think there is probably then a purposeful, intentional mention of Adam here as Jesus enters into the temptation to follow. Luke could have put this earlier in the book very easily. Jesus, as the second Adam, will beat Satan. Where did the first Adam fail? In a beautiful garden without sin, everything all around him was perfect. Satan comes with a temptation and Adam caves. What will the second Adam do? There in the desert with no food in his body for 40 days. In a desert region all alone, Jesus, the second Adam, defeats Satan. Now, as we go up from there, from Adam, we go to Seth. We're not going to work our way through every name, don't worry. But we will highlight a few here. Now, where does that take us? We know where this goes, right? With Adam and Seth, we go back to Genesis 3. I invite you back there. Uh, particularly for those that may have not have thought about this before, but for all of us to remember, we go back to this great ancient prophecy in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Where God in his judgment upon the serpent, and the serpent, of course, uh, being viewed here through his influence upon ungodly people, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will crush, same Hebrew word, his heel. Now there is a reference here to the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and there is reference here to her offspring and yours. Godly offspring is an evidence, is the, the point here is that God elects to bring salvation through discernible bloodlines. <clears throat> Following hard on the prophecy of 3.15 comes chapter 4, right? 
Where does chapter 4 start? Here Adam lays with his wife Eve and she becomes pregnant and gives birth to Cain. That is no mistake that chapter 4 follows chapter 3. In this prophecy that there will be two competing offsprings, chapter 4 and chapter 5 begin to lay out who those offsprings are. At this point, we're dealing with bloodlines. That's not true for us today, and so it's somewhat of a confusion for us to think in these terms. But we have the people of Cain, and we have the people of whom? Who's the son that rises up in Abel's place? It is Seth. And that is all laid out for us in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The godly line will go through Seth. Now, back, don't turn back there necessarily, but back in Luke 3, we have the reference to Seth. That's an extremely important uh, element in the genealogy. We go from Adam to Seth. Now you remember there's two Lamechs. The one Lamech curses God, the other is in the godly line. And that Lamech line leads to whom? It leads to Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And in, in uh, Noah's day, <clears throat> we read that the Lord, chapter 6, 5 of Genesis, saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So now in all of the earth, God sees it essentially as completely corrupt, but there is this one righteous man, Noah. And from this righteous man, we know there are three sons that are born, and which of those sons is in the godly line? It is Shem, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 21. Chapter 10 and verse 21. Sons were born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Down to chapter 11 and verse 10. This is the account of Shem. And through, from Eber, uh, through Shem to Eber, and then the account of Shem, that will lead us where? That is going to lead us to chapter 12 of Genesis and Abraham. And now we're beginning to, all of us, I think, who know anything about the Bible are saying, I know him, I know Abraham, well, this is how we get to Abraham. We've got to get there through Seth. We've got to get there through Noah. And through Noah, we've got to get there through Shem. And through Shem, we now come to Abraham, who is chosen by God, chapter 12, verse 3, to be a blessing to all nations. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Chapter 15 and verse 3. God says to Abraham again, Abraham said, you've given me no children, so an heir in my household will be my... Uh, Servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Where do we go from there? Further promises, 17.4. We can continue through the book of Genesis, but let me just mention 17.4. Abraham falls, verse 3, before the Lord, and as for me, this is my covenant with you, says God. You will be the father of many nations. And we can continue through Genesis. God continues to say it is through Isaac 
that your offspring will be called, this promise of an offspring through whom the world will be blessed passes through this man. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 17 and verse 6, we notice there a reference to the promise of kings. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. Through which of the twelve sons of Jacob is the line of the kings? We go to chapter 49. In this prophecy, as Jacob is about to die, Israel is about to die, chapter 49 and verse 10, he says, In prophetic blessing, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Who shows up next? A number of individuals on the line, and we're skipping many of them, but follow in Luke chapter 3 as we come uh, now to the person of David at the end of verse 31. This line going through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob passes in a kingly way through Judah, and from Judah comes King David. And you'll notice that it is through then the son of Nathan that the genealogy traces after David. But with David, we think of the promises of God to this great king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, saying that there would be a son that would rule on the throne of David forever. The New Testament starts with a genealogy. Matthew establishes right out of the gate that Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15 to crush Satan's head. If we know our Old Testament and we know what God is up to beginning at Genesis 3.15, we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ and go bing, 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 bing all the way along. There's no way you can construct this. To deceive. These are authors writing, some of them centuries apart, who are saying, here's the godly line, here is the people of God, it is through this line that the offspring will come, through this line that the Savior will come, through this line that the King will come. You can't invent that when you're separated by centuries of time. It all indicates to us that the Bible has one ultimate author who is bound by time, not bound by time, who knows the future perfectly, and who is so powerful as to sovereignly orchestrate human affairs to culminate in predestined ends. God knows where he's headed with all of this. He determines before the foundation of the earth the very line through whom Messiah would be born, when he would be born, and where he would be born. And for those who are not in rebellion against him, these indicators of Christ's messianic credentials are very clear indeed. This brings us comfort as God's people. We know who Jesus was. Jesus has the messianic credentials. He's the chosen Savior of the world. There is none other. And when we look at these ideas of the voice of God speaking in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we look at this genealogical tracing of the very person that will be the Messiah, we can with confidence place our soul and our eternal destiny in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Do you recognize Christ for who He really is? It's another thing, it's one thing to see His credentials, it's another thing to embrace Him as who He truly is.
I mentioned that Rudolph Giuliani is going to Minneapolis to speak here soon. Now, he has the credentials to be a leader. And frankly, I'm not going to go listen to what he has to say. I'm sure it would be a great speech and be interesting, but I've got a few other things to do. No offense to him, but I'm not going to go there to listen to him talk to me about how to think positively. You know, a lot of people treat Jesus Christ that way. You know, I'm impressed with what Jesus Christ did. I'm impressed with what Rudolf Giuliani did at 9-11 and other people. And I'm, I'm impressed with what Jesus did. He's got the credentials. If he did come back, he could really lead one whale of a seminar. But I'm really not going to listen to him. I've got other things to do. I've got a life to lead. And that subtle word deep within our soul that says, really at the end of the day, I'd rather be my own king. I really don't need a king to rule my life. What we see in this passage is a profound statement of Jesus' credentials, and it is therefore a call to us not only to acknowledge those credentials, but to embrace him for who he is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There are no other saviors who have these credentials. There are no other saviors who are fitted to provide such a salvation. And let me turn to just one more passage as we close, and that is the book of Galatians, chapter 3, which I think ties together nicely all that we have seen in this genealogy, and we've just scratched the surface of it. But Galatians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now, this really does have something to do with you, and that's what I'd like to emphasize. It has something, it's very personal the genealogy of Jesus Christ and the line of Abraham. Consider Abraham, says Paul. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are, in a sense, his children. It does not make us literal Jews, but it makes us, through faith, his people. It makes us, through faith, those who, like Abraham, trust the word of God and know that the promise to Abraham is in this long connection of God's saving purposes for his people. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Have you identified with Christ in His baptism? If you had lived in Nazareth next door to Jesus, I wonder, would you have been willing to go with Him on that long journey down to Jordan River and be with Him as He was baptized and be baptized yourself? There's a similar call for us today. We do not follow John's baptism. It's a whole different world now that Christ has died and risen from the dead. But we too, as God's people, there is a connection there. There is a similarity there, and that is that God has a physical water baptism for the people who follow him. It is a call 
in a real sense, to leave the world behind. To identify with the repentant by faith in Christ and by water baptism. There's many today who would not submit to such an identification with Christ. There's the allure of the world. It's not popular. Popular to say, I'm a Christian, sort of, and I know Jesus was a good guy. That's okay. You can get by with that here in this culture quite easily. But to go and be baptized, to identify with his cause, that's another thing. And under the influence of pluralism, the singular role of Jesus as the Savior and only way to God is being seriously challenged in our day. His credentials are being questioned. Is Jesus really that unique after all? Well, I say on the authority of this book, what we have studied already and what we will see, Lord willing, as we continue through the book, we can say, yes, he is. He is unique. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other Savior who has done what he has done. There is no other Savior who has these credentials. Every other Savior, there's something very scary about them. When you hold up their credentials and you look at the picture, it looks more like a mirror than it does a picture. All of the human saviors of this world are really nothing more than a reflection of who we are in the end. Jesus is unique. He was chosen from eternity past to come as God, taking on flesh and taking on the project of redemption for all people, all nations, for all time. And no matter how sophisticated we may think we're becoming, the books are coming off the presses faster and faster and faster these days. To say that Christianity is a great religion, it's a great faith, but it's just one among many. It might get a little lonelier as we hold to the biblical foundation. We might be left in the dust by the in crowd, even in evangelicalism, as hard as that is to even say. But one thing we can know, will you go there in faith and stand on that Jordan River and hear God say, this is my son. And walk through time from that prophecy in Genesis 3. And walk through all of those people. And come through the prophecy of Daniel and many other things that we've not mentioned. And take all of those promises, all of those prophecies, and that narrow, narrow, narrow lineage. And say, He is the Savior. Jesus is the Son of God, sent to redeem the world from sin, period. That is not arrogance on the part of some Westerner, because I frankly really don't know that there's more Westerners that are Christians than there are Easterners. It's not arrogance at all. It's just to say that there's one wicked river 
that we all have to cross. And there's one bridge, and that bridge is Jesus. And it makes no difference the color of your skin, your nationality, how long you've lived, where you've been, who your parents are, or how badly you've sinned. You walk across that bridge, and you walk into eternity in the presence of God forever. Jesus is that bridge. God has spoken once on this matter. He doesn't need to say it again. He did at the transfiguration. Speak again. And he does at another place in Jesus' ministry. And perhaps times that are not recorded, we don't know. But he has said it and he meant what he said. This is my son. This is the way of salvation. And members of Eden Baptist Church and those of you who visit with us that know the Lord, hold on to that truth. There's a gale force coming. Those of you who are young people, you, without any question, if Christ does not return, are going to have to be on the outside looking in. You're going to have to be very unusual in the coming days because the uniqueness of Jesus as Savior is going to be very seriously attacked throughout the church. Not by unbelievers. We expect that. It's being attacked in the church. And you know what's going to happen here in the West if things continue the way they're going? The lights are going to keep turning off. Now, the churches will grow as they adjust to a pluralistic Jesus that's one among many, a way to salvation. The churches will keep growing. I would, I'm, just, I'm not a prophet, but I'm just guessing. They'll keep growing, but the lights will keep turning off. As fewer and fewer people come to understand who Jesus really is as Savior. And you know what's going on in the East? where we're supposedly the arrogant ones saying that only Christ is the way, there's more and more people coming to Christ in the East. The lights are turning on there. So we may find ourselves in a position that's not really enjoyable. In a culture that is constantly badgering us, and even in an evangelical climate that is constantly saying there's other ways, there's other messiahs, there's other salvations, don't forget what God's doing in the East. There are people who are growing up in Buddhism and Hinduism, following Confucius and the other Eastern religions, and they are coming to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And it appears that they are beginning to pass us up as far as those who are coming to embrace that message. When I get to heaven, I want to be on the side of those who knew Jesus Christ was the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because I really believe that's all that's going to be there. Maybe we'll be a little lonely here in the West. But I want to stand with all those Easterners then, who are my contemporaries that set aside all of those religions where the leader was just a mirror. And they embraced the one whom God himself said is my son. Where do you land? 
Where do you land here in this setting? Where do you land out in the work world? Where are you going to land when you meet God face to face? You're not going to think about anything any more important this week. Make sure you know where you stand. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I, I really sense and feel a weight about what we have been thinking about here in these last few moments. But, God, there's also a joy. We're worried in some respects about where things are headed and where theology is taking people these days. Worried about that day when a church will have to state up front that Jesus is one way or people won't even come. But God, those are just worries. We look at what we have in Jesus Christ and we rejoice. And I pray that there would be joy in our hearts now as we sing, as we close in prayer. Father, I plead in behalf of anyone who does not know Christ as personal Savior. I pray that you'll bring them face to face with him today and who he really is. That they'd be saved. I pray for those of us who know you as Savior, God, that we'd go from here rejoicing that we have this sure word that he is who he said he was. That we would then be busy proclaiming the bridge, Jesus Christ, and calling people onto that bridge by example and by word. Grant us a harvest, I pray, in this pluralistic world that is dying and empty. Use us to this end, I pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.